0: So let's, let's get going in our, in our text in Luke chapter 7. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we started, uh, we, we've started singing our, our Christmas carols, right? We started singing our, our Christmas carols. I was saying uh, two more uh, this morning. I'm not sure what your, your favorites are, but I tend to like uh, Joy to the World and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, those, are, those are some pretty good ones. Some of them you have to kind of weed through. Like uh, uh, the first Noel, we, we kind of cut verse 3 out. I don't know if you all knew that. Or we cut verse 3 out because some of it was kind of like, you know, three wise men and things like that. I'm like, eh, you know, what well, we can do without that, that part. Um, but some of them are good, and so we, we sing them. And we sang two more this morning, um, and we enjoy them because a lot of them are filled with some wonderful themes, some glorious themes, right? Of, of the gospel, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's not just entirely on um, the uh, incarnation. This morning we sang Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest, right? This is not just the proclamation of the angels at the birth of Christ that evening. That's not the only time that they exclaim glory to God in the highest. But they were letting us in, weren't they? They were letting us in to to see the throne room of, of God and to peek inside of the holy of holies of holies where all the angels gather to sing glory to God in the highest. And also bringing us into the idea that we will be brought in. That we will be brought in close to seeing glory to God in the highest, and not die, <laughs> and not die from God's holiness and God's uh, glory. Um, another great song that we sing, that I enjoy uh, singing and I enjoy leading you on, is, "O come, all ye faithful." Um, very simple yet profound song. First verse, "O come." Repetitive, but it's very simple and, and, and good. But what is so profound, so profounding about that song to, uh, uh, to me is that it kind of exposes the reality of our world celebrating Christmas. And that is that reality is is not everyone who faces the birth of Christ and, and celebrates Christmas can actually come and adore him. Not everyone does that. I mean, even in, the, even in the face of that day and that age, Herod, the king, Herod, the, the, the great, searched for this baby, but not to worship him, but to kill him. And because he didn't kill him, he killed thousands of little boys throughout the region. The priests... They heard, they saw the, the signs around them, they knew what was happening, but what did they do? Nothing. They were, they were indifferent. But what about the angels, or what about the shepherds, I'm sorry? The, the shepherds did come, didn't they? They, they came and they, 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 uh, uh, they adored and they, and they worshipped. Isn't that the same response, though, of us today? The same kind of responses, those who come and adore, those who don't care, and those who flat out reject Christ. So then who comes and adores? Who? Our passage this morning, as we will finish up chapter 7, we will see Jesus in what seems to be a very awkward situation. I mean, very awkward situation. I'm going to try to communicate that to you all this morning. This kind of situation where uh, if, if we were in, we would be really embarrassed. Right? We would just kind of be blushing a little bit because it would be so awkward and so, so off. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And we're going to show you the idea of what it means not only to come and adore him, but what it looks like of those who are coming and adore him. So what I'm going to do this morning, and, and, and I'm not going to read the text completely through, so you're going to have to follow me with the other ones. Uh, I'm going to read a portion of the text, and then we'll go just so that we can save a little bit of time um, and not just read the whole thing through. But we will read it all the way through eventually. Um, so awkward story. Awkward story in Luke chapter 7, so be ready because we're going to jump right into it in just a few minutes. Um, but a very awkward story that's very appropriate to the Gospel of Luke. It's very awkward, embarrassing situation, but it's a very appropriate situation or a very appropriate story within the Gospel of Luke. If you remember from the very beginning, when we first started Luke, we unpacked the context, and we continue to throw that out there as well because we want us to understand why this book is here, and it's for us to have certainty. In the gospel, certainty of the gospel that we have heard, that has been preached to us, that we have come to believe, certainty in the person and, and work of Jesus Christ. That is the overall context and purpose of this gospel. But with underneath that umbrella, there are other themes throughout the gospel of Luke that stand out maybe a little bit more than what we have seen in some of the other gospels. And that is this overwhelming Welcoming, invitation, and hospitality to those who are outcasts and rejects of society. We've seen this already since the very beginning. The Christmas story. God highly favors who? A insignificant virgin teenager who is unmarried from Nazareth. To be the mother of the son of God. Not insignificant. Person would never be significant otherwise. Number two. Secondly, we saw how God revealed the birth of Jesus in in the most astonishing way to the shepherds. We kind of have songs about that. He, He revealed himself to shepherds, not kings, not Prophets, not priests, but shepherds. Shepherds, the least of the society. They, they were the least of the least. They were known to not just be dirty guys, but guys with foul mouths who were untrustworthy, who were liars and sometimes thieves. That's how they got stuck in the wilderness. Convicts, right? You can call them convicts. These are the kind of people, and yet God brought to them, brought them into the greatest of all stories. Fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Who else does he call to be his disciples and then commissions them to preach and to lead and to be apostles in the kingdom of God? Fishermen. Tax collectors. Galileans. Look who pe- look at the people Jesus heals. Who he touches. Lepers. Unclean. Demon possessed. Who does he go and party with? Tax collectors. And then the friends of the tax collectors. You know those guys really got to be leeches. Who does Jesus go party with? Who does he heal? He heals the the servant of a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Who does Jesus go to and raise the, the the dead son, the young man, to a poor insignificant widow from a podunk town? And here in Luke 7, 36 through 50, what we will see is we will see this woman. We will see this woman who... How do you say it? Doesn't have a very good reputation. And yet this is... Yet one of the most beautiful parts of the gospel is that these kind of people, these outcasts, these rejects, the gospel applies to them. And we see them responding. Jesus touches... Jesus heals, he redeems, he restores, he renews and reconciles, justifies, and revives those who are completely undeserving of any grace and mercy. And they just come one after another. And he welcomes them in all of those people who the world has abused and has used as objects of their own desires, those who the world has completely forgotten about, those who the world has even denied them the basic human status of humanity, Jesus heals them, forgives them, touches them, and saves them. So what the Jews got wrong about this Messiah about this coming Messiah, and they had such a difficulty reconciling, so most of them could not, was how they believed that the Messiah would come and rid Israel of people like this. And he would would cast them out eternally so they wouldn't be around anymore. And he would get rid of all of these great sinners who they hated so much. But what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't meet their unbiblical expectations, but he welcomed. He was hospitable. He was kind to these outsiders. In fact, he actually attacked those who were the self-righteous, didn't he? So here's the point. I'm just going to boil it down right in the beginning, the point of our passage today, which is so shocking and so scandalous about the gospel, and that is God's grace. God's grace is for outsiders and outcasts and great sinners that know that they need grace and forgiveness. Those that are sinners and know it, and for those who are sinners who don't know it. We all owe a debt that we, that we cannot pay, but at this, but at that point... When we realize this, when we see ourselves just like the woman in this story, as needy, helpless, dirty, unclean, rejected, and unlovable, it is then at that point we will see the lovely face of our Savior. The lovely face of our Savior. We'll see in His face the the justice of God. We will see the holiness of God and the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God just crashing together with His grace and with His Mercy and goodness and love. That is the face of Christ. Whom God sent to be our propitiation. To satisfy his wrath towards sinners. And then welcoming us in. No longer to be outsiders and outcasts and unlovable. But now as sons and brothers and sisters and co-heirs with Christ, when we see this, when we grasp this, this is when we will come and adore. This is when we will come and adore and love Jesus greatly with great sacrifice like this woman in this passage. Like another Christmas carol that we sing, and I think we're singing it next week, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and sinners reconciled. That is the key of seeing today's passage as we unpack it together. So let's look together at verse 36. Look at verse 36 with me. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that she was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anointed them with ointment. We're going to stop right there. And we do not know why. The Pharisee, as we've come to know, I believe in verse 40 that his name is Simon. We don't know why Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to come to his house and, 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 and eat. We already know what the Pharisees think of Jesus and his eating and drinking, right? They call him a drunkard, and they call him a, a glutton. And maybe that was the point, right? Just to kind of catch him in his drunkenness and his gluttonness, you know, a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. So with that kind of opinion of Jesus, why would he invite Jesus to come over? Maybe it was because Jesus was popular. Jesus was a somebody, right? We, we know this. Jesus was a somebody. And, and maybe Simon wanted to be a somebody by having Jesus come to his house. It's possible that Simon had some spiritual interest, maybe like Nicodemus did in John chapter 3, except for he didn't come to him in the night. But whatever the reason is, we still see some some. Form or some idea of, of this animosity toward uh, uh, Jesus and the way that he treats him as his guest in his home. We'll come to see that in just a, in just a few minutes. And that Jesus was flat out neglected by Simon. There was some animosity there. So, so Jesus went to this, this dinner party and, and after this meal, they were reclining at the table together. Now, they, they eat and they enjoy meals around tables a little bit different than, than, than we do. They would sit down and eat, and then when they get done, it was t- entirely appropriate to, to actually lay down at the table, right? It was entirely appropriate to, to lay down, right? Of course, your, your, your feet would go away from the table for obvious reasons. Right, so this is the, the idea of what's going on. So the conversation is, is, is about to take place. Also traditionally in these kind of meals, when they had people come over, they wouldn't leave the doors and windows open, so people around town could kind of gather at the conversation time and, and listen and observe. They weren't allowed in the house, but they can sit around and, and listen. So this is the context of, of what's going on at, after the meal when they're reclining at uh, uh, the table. And when everyone's there listening and waiting, probably expecting a very spirited and lively debate, probably, no one expected what was to happen. No one could expect what was to happen. That as Jesus was laying there, neglected by the host, physically by the host, besides food. The gasps of the guests. And probably the outright sheer horror of Simon when this woman walks inside of his house. Walks, through, walks right in and walks behind Jesus. A woman of the city. A woman of the city who was a sinner. That's code for prostitute. That's code language for prostitute. And Jesus gives, or Luke gives us a little few details, but, but the vague way of him describing was, of describing her was, was code that this is what she was, and this is what her reputation was and as. So um, um, imagine the audacity and, and even the courage for her, with this kind of reputation that everyone knew, would walk into the home of a Pharisee that night and just come busting in there. One word to describe it. Scandalous. Put it on the front page of the newspaper. What are you going to say about that, Simon? Can't keep people like that out of your house? You see, the Pharisees guarded their, their purity very close, closely, and they, would, um, and, and they would avoid every form of contact uh, of, of anything or anyone that could defile them, including a sinful woman like this. To the Pharisees, she had an infectious disease. An infectious disease that he could not even stand to be around her. Now, we don't know. We don't know specifically what was the situation or what prompted her to to come in at this moment. We, we don't know. We, we, we don't know what encouraged her, what, what drew her that moment. But apparently, in some form or way, she knew who Jesus was. She might even had some, some future or earlier times of speaking with him and, and, and hearing him or whatever it may be, but something drew that to, to Jesus that night. And one thing that drew her was love. Love drew her to Christ gratitude drew her to Christ. She was so deeply moved at the prospect of forgiveness and restoration that can only come from the Son of God. And Jesus knew what she was doing. Jesus knew exactly what she was doing. But to everyone else, just to kind of cue you into the scandal here, to to everyone else what she was doing to Jesus was was looked looked like and treating him the way that she was was like this inappropriate, shocking display of intimacy. That's a really kind way of say what they what they were thinking. This is what this is this is what was happening. Very scandalous, inappropriate public behavior. PDA. She was weeping uncontrollably, very loudly. you ever been in, a, in, a, in a, a public place where, you know, maybe you're at a restaurant or, or maybe at the mall or something like that or a store, and then all of a sudden someone just, like, yells out, you know, what, or maybe you hear someone crying really loud. you ever hear that? Or some, even sometimes when someone's laughing, you know, really loud, you're like, ooh, that must have been good, right? Uh, you know, even when a child cries in public, At a certain point, then it just kind of makes us feel like something's not right, right? So imagine this situation where they're at this dinner party. Here comes this woman of the night, and she is at Jesus' feet, and she is crying uncontrollably, weeping uncontrollably, very, very loudly. She was sobbing so much that her tears were so abundant that they begin to soak Jesus' feet where it was good enough for her to let her hair down to clean his feet. Now, here's another part of the scandal. I mean, it's just getting worse. A woman to let her hair down in public in this first century was very scandalous. Because what it actually kind of represents, in a sense, is a big no-no. It was the kind of thing you only did in your bedroom. Right? It's the only kind of things you do in in your bedroom. You let your hair down is one of those. It's like going topless, to put it lightly. That's what that meant. I mean, so, scandal. Unbelievable what is taking place in Simon's house right now. Over and over, she's kissing his feet, and then anoints his feet with, with oil, this expensive oil from the alabaster flask. This woman was a mess. Crying unashamed, unashamedly, with runny nose, stringy hair, filled with mud and, and and dirt. We would be so embarrassed and awkward and weird it was this, with the situation and that kind of display. We would be totally weirded out. But this was an act, as we come to see, of a joyous humility. The act of a redeemed soul toward her Savior. An act of desperation, of of love and joy toward toward her Savior. Her tears. Why did she weep so much? She wept so much because she, having lived with intense guilt and breaking the seventh commandment over and over and over again, she was guilty, uh, guilty and ashamed daily. Her culture let her know how guilty she was on a daily basis. But now, meeting the Savior, all her guilt was going to be removed and all the weight and the burdens of her sin would be gone. Her shame would be gone. Her guilt would be lifted from her shoulders. So it didn't matter what she looked like anymore before everyone else it only mattered what it looked like before her savior so she wept tears of sorrow overcome by by great tears of joy with a new heart being made pure being washed clean being once rejected but now accepted by god tears of ongoing repentance and tears of great joy i love that because if she stood guiltless before the lord then being embarrassed or ashamed before man meant nothing. It meant nothing. She used her hair. Why did she use her hair? Because to a woman, her, her hair was her womanly glory. That's why it's meant to be saved for the bedroom. But she loosened it to wipe Jesus' feet because she was now devoting herself to Jesus' glory. She was putting everything in subjection to his glory. His glory was now her priority. Why did she kiss his feet? She kissed his feet in acts of, of pure adoration and, and worship. This is how sinners expression express love and worship to such a kind and good Savior. And when he looks down on them with grace and mercy, that's all a sinner can reply and do is in worship. And thankfulness, and gratitude. So according to Jesus, as inappropriate as this all looked, according to Jesus, she couldn't be more precise in her love. What an example. But as great as an example she is, what's even greater is not just her acts of love, but the object of her love. The object of her love, Jesus. So as crazy and scandalous as this spectacle was for this woman to do everything that she was doing, what really blew everybody away that night was not just the what she was doing. They kind of would expect that maybe from her. But what really blew them away was Jesus didn't stop her. Jesus didn't, didn't stop her. He, he, he did nothing. He let her do everything that she was doing. He was affirming her in her hospitality over the Pharisees' hospitality. That her hospitality in the Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah, was more genuine and real than this Pharisee. Jesus was not put off by the woman's sin and reputation. He was not like everyone else. He wasn't like the Pharisee that was going to just condemn outward sins. Why ignore the inner sins? Jesus freely received and redeemed her as she came to him in faith and repentance. Amazing that the Son of God before this woman would allow his identity to be linked with hers. Isn't that good news for us? Isn't that good news for us that Jesus Christ, the Creator and the Redeemer, He has not changed? The one who loved and forgave her loves us and forgives us and links His identity with us. He is not afraid of our sin. He is not afraid of your identity because He replaces it all. He replaces what once was sinful and dead with something completely new that resembles more of himself. Was her love over the top? was it too much? Does it make us uncomfortable? It made the Pharisee uncomfortable. Verse 39, you can read with me. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, if, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is that is doing and touching him. For she is a sinner. So the Pharisees' ambivalence about who Jesus is is completely on display here. Right? I mean, everything that we would expect of the Pharisees is kind of like taking place. Everything. right? Because, because he would prefer... He would prefer Jesus to, to, as she came up behind him when he was reclining, to just to kind of kick her away, like like a you know like a stray dog kind of coming up and trying to eat your food underneath the table. You don't know what it is. You kind of kick it. That's what he would prefer her to, him do with, with her. In fact, his thought once again was the thought I think of the the people all around, and that I think he was subtly in his mind accusing Jesus of sexual misconduct. And he cannot reconcile this idea that if Jesus is a prophet, if you really believe that he was a prophet in the first place, that he would be willing to allow this woman to, uh, to, to touch him. That, that Jesus would accept her and love her was something he couldn't even conceive of. It just can't happen. What's, What's interesting about this... Um, about this accusation in the mind of Simon is that it's right on par with what they already accused Jesus of doing, isn't it? And what's even more amazing, is, as as uh, as harsh of an accusation this is toward Jesus, Luke does nothing to rescue Jesus from it in his writing of the book. In fact, he pl- he plays it out. He 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 plays it out. He plays it out that that Jesus loves and redeems tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, now these are notorious sinners, right? These are what we would call the, the, uh, an example of notorious great sinners. I think this is one of the main reasons why this is here, is for us to see that these are great sinners, and it's in this area, in this place, for us, so that it's kind of like a test for the rest of us, who may not be classified as notorious sinners. Do we gasp at God's grace when he saves people like this? Do we celebrate God's grace or are we scandalized? Does it make us uncomfortable and embarrassed? As the Lord that day knew the woman's heart, he knows Simon's heart, but he also knows us as well. So he teaches us this lesson through through the parable of the two debtors, doesn't he? Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lenderer had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, "You have judged rightly." So here's this mini parable of two, two debtors. He's explaining this situation to us a little bit more, and comparing the two, comparing the, 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 the Pharisee to this woman. The two debtors in this parable are metaphors for sinners, for all sinners. Both, both are debtors, regardless of its. 50 denarii or 500 uh, denarii. The, the amount is a massive debt. The common worker of the day would only make about one denarius a day. That would be how much they made. And, and making one denarius a day was, was just about enough to survive that one day. And you had to go back to work to earn another one so you could survive the next day. There's very little getting ahead at all. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is what, what Jesus is teaching us and showing us this, uh, um, see, this, this example, that it doesn't matter if you're 50 or 500 in, in debt. You're, you're never getting out. You're in debt. It doesn't matter if you're like the, the, the woman who is a sinner 10 times more than the, uh, uh, the sinner of 50. It doesn't matter. You're in debt, and you're never getting out. And if we're not careful, we will begin to see ourselves like Simon. I'm only 50 in debt, and she's 500. I'm better. I'm better. I'm, I'm good. And you know, on the outside, we can always look hard enough to find someone who's a greater sinner than ourselves, can't we? To kind of appease our own sinfulness. But both are sinners. 50, 500, doesn't matter. On, on the outside, doesn't matter. And because inwardly, we're all just as guilty, and we're both all just as guilty and in debt and unable to pay. So it doesn't matter if you're the high-class Pharisee who avoids every bit of sinful activity you can and a sinful people that you can. We have the same problem as the low-class prostitute. And Simon didn't have the slightest clue of this. He didn't have the slightest clue. He didn't have the, the, the slightest clue of the idea of his sin. He didn't, couldn't, couldn't see, conceive any uh, notion of needing grace like this woman. You see, Christians love a good story of the, the redemption of the drug addict or the criminal who comes out of jail or, or the prostitute or whatever it may be. We, we, we love these good stories of those who are being, quote unquote, radically saved. But what about the deacon? What about the church attender? What about the upstanding moral man or woman? What about the child who grew up in church their whole life or the pastor's kid? Do you know and realize that Christ's teaching here applies to everyone? To everyone. For for all. That that grace is not just for the big-time sinners, but it's for everyone. It's for people like me. We are all in debt. But this passage or this uh, thing also shows us that we are also bankrupt, aren't we? It shows us our bankruptcy. We're equally bankrupt and insolvent and unable to pay no matter if our debt is 50 or 500. We're always going to be in debt, bankrupt. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who, who can pay that debt. This doesn't mean that we're unable to improve ourselves and live better lives and, and try to live in a pure way, kind of like, like Simon, or be a better person. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is, is that you can do nothing to wipe away your status as a bankrupt debtor, a sinner. There's no way. And this is what Jesus was driving at in exposing this Pharisee and showing the differences between him and this woman. And that, bro, there's not any... You need grace just as much as she does. And this is what we all must understand is that our condition, and this is the condition we all exist in, and we must realize this before we can be forgiven. Before we can be forgiven. And this is what we see the difference between the woman and the Pharisee she sees it, she realizes it. It Doesn't matter. Do you remember a few weeks ago I told you about an illustration about the futility of anybody trying to jump across a river? Right? It doesn't matter if you are Shaquille O'Neal, you're an Olympic long jumper, if you're me, or if you're Lottie. And if we're all standing at the edge of this river and we all do our darndest, we're all gonna get wet. And and that's what he's saying. We're all broke. And this woman realizes it. She realizes she never could pay what she owes. But she had faith that Jesus will pay it. Faith that Jesus will pay it for her. So Simon asks the obvious question. Or Jesus asks Simon the, the, the obvious first question: who's gonna who loves the, um, the the money lender more? He begrudgingly answers. I don't know if you can see that in the text. He just kind of begrudgingly answers, I suppose. If I have to answer you, because you kind of got me in this trap here, uh, uh, Jesus, is the one who canceled their larger debt. Those who know they have been forgiven the most, love the most. A great example, St. Augustine, new uh, first century church theologian. But before that, when he was 17 years old, he moved out of his home. Cohabitating with his girlfriend and had a baby out of wedlock. Lived very, uh, uh, very much to the flesh and to the world. Did as he pleased. And yet, when God, by his grace, encountered Augustine, you can read it in uh, Conf- uh, Augustine's Confessions, a great book. Uh, when, when God encountered him, About ten years later, he saw his sin, and he was converted, and would eventually become uh, the the bishop of of Hippo and one of the greatest theologians of the early church, humbly devoted to God's sovereign grace. And then there was another guy giving another example, John Newton. John Newton, a pastor, theologian, author, and for most of us, we know him as the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, Probably the most popular, well known hymn of of all time. Maybe the most well known song of all time, right? Amazing Grace. But did you know that before that, he lived a life of debauchery? That's a good word for how he lived drunkenness, fleshly living. And did you also know that he was a slave trader? But it wasn't until God's grace came upon him when he saw the the depth of the wickedness of his sin and he saw the beauty of Christ, he wept and trusted Jesus. That's what amazing grace is all about. That's where that song came from. It was an expression of the goodness of God to have grace upon such a sinner as him. We see it also in the writings of Augustine. These guys were people that we would not want to be around. But look how they expressed their love to Jesus. This is why the Spirit of God uses His Word and gives us a greater consciousness of our sin. Find a deep, loving, authentic Christian brother or sister, and I guarantee you will find someone who understands every day they, are greater, they understand every day with a greater awareness of their own sinfulness. You find a Christian brother who, is, who, is, who understands their sinfulness before the Lord, you will know, see that they are deep, loving, and authentic in their faith. But there's something else that they also know. They don't just know their sinfulness, they know the grace of God. And they delight in it. And they enjoy it. And they proclaim it. This is why we find so many Christians with such little love for Jesus. They could take it or leave it, to most it seems like. If something better comes up, that's where I'm going. They could take it or leave it, because they have never truly seen what great sinners they are. And then shown how sure and sweet and complete Jesus' forgiveness is. I have to say that, as I have been convinced by uh, the Scriptures, this is why I love Reformed theology so much. Because it tells me that as a good kid, I'm still completely helpless and broken. That I'm still utterly bankrupt before a holy and righteous God. And yet, by His sovereign grace, I am saved. It gives all glory to Christ. It gives all glory to Christ. And I, as this helpless sinner, I get Him. I get get Him regardless of my works. And that gives me such great joy and hope. And this is what the woman found. This is, what the, this is what the woman found. Look at verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Yeah, Jesus, I saw this woman. He couldn't really miss it. Right? Just answering the question. Yeah, I answered the house. You, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that she has come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. There's no oil for Jesus' feet. He does not kiss Jesus or welcome him. These are all just common courtesies of the culture of welcoming Jesus into his home. And he neglects all of that. Why? Because at the heart of Simon, there is no impulse of love whatsoever toward Jesus. None. It was only his religious duty that he would do anything. He didn't need Jesus, so he could take him or leave him. He didn't, he didn't need Jesus. He didn't, he, he's good. But what about you? Are we like Simon? Or maybe like the Apostle Paul? When he said, This saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Paul, the worst of sinners? I can wholeheartedly answer that question, yes. Ben, the worst of sinners? I can wholeheartedly answer the question, yes. To any of us, we I answer that question, yes. And it's not some false humility. But the more and more we walk with Christ, the more and more we know His goodness and grace, the more we become sensitized to what is normally tasteless and colorless and odorless called sin. We become sensitized to it. We begin to see it more. But what even overcomes even more is His grace. And here is her justification. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many. I agree with you there, Simon. Here's the 500 sinner, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And doesn't that speak volumes, right? Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, here's scandal, right? Who is this who even forgives sin? And and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Our love for Jesus does not justify us before God. It does not obligate Him to forgive us. It is first and foremost that He has loved us first. And in loving us first, he has given us his grace and his mercy towards such indebted sinners and that drew, that drew him to the cross all for the glory of God so that we can be forgiven, justified, and no longer in debt. It is paid in full. And then it is through faith, as we see in the passage here. In faith we respond and we believe and love our Savior. She expressed her faith in loving Christ. Her love was an expression of her faith. Why did she love much? Because she has been forgiven and she has faith in her Savior. So this passage encourages us to self-examination. Are we more aware of our good deeds and our moral uprightness than we are of our deep need for forgiveness? Is your righteousness based upon your compliance with rules? Or are you fully dependent upon the righteousness of Christ? When you sin, are you driven to the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, or are you trying by your own resolutions and by your own gumption to do better next time? You see the example of the sinful woman encourages us to be very aware of our sin. Yes, not not to celebrate it, but in order we are aware of our sin in order to celebrate how great his grace is. That's our awareness of sin does for us. So if you find this morning your heart needs a little adjustment in this area, or maybe much adjustment in this area, and that your love is cold, I want to direct you to the only place, the greatest place to turn for that adjustment to take place, and that is at the cross. Not the manger, but the cross. How could God be just in forgiving such a woman? And forgive us. As scandalous as everything else was surrounding this woman, busting into this party, doing the things that she was doing with her hair and her tears and in, in, the, in the ointment, nothing rivals. Even before the people and before the world, the scandal of the display of God's grace. You can look later on at Romans three twenty-three through 20, 26, and you will see that our justification comes at the cross. Where it at the cross where our debt was paid, where Jesus bore our sins on the cross, satisfying God's justice and wrath, securing our forgiveness. The cross is how we know how horrible our sin is. John Stott, in his book, uh, The Cross of Christ, said this, Our sin must be extremely horrible. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately, what sent Christ there was our our own greed and envy and cowardice and other sins. And Christ's resolved in love and mercy to bear their judgment and to put them away. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency... Blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There, these noxious weeds shrivel and die. There, they are seen for tatty, poisonous things that things they are. For if there was no way by which the righteous God would righteously forgive our unrighteousness except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. It is at the cross that we run to. That we, that we turn to. That we, that we look to for this humility and understanding, the seriousness of even our own sinfulness. And yet also our great need. So here's where I want to leave you this morning. I want you to experience and see, as I think this woman saw, just the, how beautiful Jesus is. I want you to see how beautiful He is, how He's perfect and sinless and pure and and not condemning. And yet not condemning. But He bore our condemnation. Can you see that? If you can, isn't He glorious? Isn't He beautiful? Isn't He good? He is beautiful. The second thing I want you to see is how beautiful the forgiven are. This woman who was wrecked by sin, abused and objectified, who willingly sold herself into sinful acts, beat up by the world, never would look the same physically probably. But now, look at this woman. She's been forgiven. Though her sins were once as scarlet, she is now pure as snow. Now she feels, the, and feels and enjoys real and true freedom and joy of her forgiveness. If you understand the gospel, you too will understand what has happened to her. What is now lovely about those who are forgiven is not external beauty and not external works, but it's the loveliness of Christ in you and in the forgiven what is lovely about you and i is not our external changes and moral uprightness and devotion but our but our beauty and loveliness is in christ and the forgiveness that he has given to us and this is the grand effect of the gospel work in us that his righteousness has become our righteousness And whether we come to Jesus as a prostitute or a churchgoer, our debt is great, our need is great, but His grace is greater. This is one of the greatest beauties of the gospel how it attracts such a large group of diverse people. We are a good example of that. And yet, this is our Savior. This is the diversity of the gospel, the work of the gospel in our midst. So I want to end this morning really quick with one little quick quote from a dear brother who was called home to be with the Lord this week. R.C. Sproul meant a lot to me. He would never know it. And He said this. He said, When we behold the face of God, all memories of pain and suffering will vanish. Our souls will be totally healed. That is what that woman expressed Her felt. No longer bearing pain the scars, and the ravages of the world and sin. And this is what happens when we come and experience the perfect grace of Christ. So I implore you this morning to come and adore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you have extended to us in Christ towards such sinners. And I pray mercifully by your spirit you would show us our sinfulness and our need for you daily so that daily we would come even more dependent upon your amazing grace. Help us this morning, O Father. Give us the words and encouragement together to respond for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.